so guy nick mason sourceful of secrets of which we are um two-fifths right are we're going back out on the road in the summer across the uk we are we're, it's all of june so brace yourself what's it called it's called the set the control store what a brilliant name who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never yeah. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, uh, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. Was he, was he, um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Morning, Gary. Morning, Guy. I can actually hear you talking in the room next door. <laughs> no, I know. You've already complained bitterly. I've had uh, three calls from reception and something in writing. Actually. <laughs> Where are we? We are in Lucerne with a bus that's broken down in Paris. So welcome to our world. Yeah, you flew in yesterday from Paris. I flew in yesterday. I I left the bubble for a day to see family, which was really, really lovely. But it's so stressful. It's so stressful once you leave the family for the, your other family. We took three trains to get here, but we were at least carrying your case. So if you never made it, I was going to put your case on stage. <laughs> <laughs> He couldn't be here, but he sent his case. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, yeah. it's actually more animated than some bass players I can think of. We, uh, <laughs> we are, we're up in the, in the sort of the Alps, aren't we? We're in the foothills of the Alps. We're in this strange hotel. They've put us out of town, up by a ski lift, miles away from anything, including electricity, it seems. Now, I mean, in Switzerland, you need a special adapter that is only... Electricity only works in Switzerland with this use of this special plug. This is driving me mad. You had to find one at the airport for me, didn't you? Uh, the airport was completely sold out of Swiss adapters. Luckily, my driver managed to stop at the Pearl Jam gig on the way to the hotel and get some adapters from their production crew. Really? Really? So, yeah. My God. <laughs> I've got Eddie Vedder's adapter. Swiss adapter. That's my claim to fame. So right now, Eddie Vedder can't record his podcast because of us. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we've got William Orbit on. We've got William Orbit on. You must have met William Orbit. You've met everyone, Guy. I've only met him once. I've, I've, there's quite a funny story which hopefully will come up, which is to do with him actually doing a remix for my late father-in-law, Rick Wright. But, uh, yeah, but he, it's amazing slow burn of a career. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I say, you know, until the 90s, and then it suddenly went... I mean, it's, you know, if ever there was an example of, man, just stick with it. Yeah, because he's you know? he's older than us. He's quite a few years older than us. And yet he didn't, yeah, exactly. he didn't make it in the 80s. Although he did have a couple of really interesting sort of early electro, you know, his band Torch song. Yeah, no, he was very cutting edge there. And there's a title, which we're obviously going to have to bring yeah, up. There um, is, yeah, yeah. And, and I suppose Basomatic was his first big hit. But obviously he's gone on to win one, yeah. Grammys with Madonna and, uh, you know, he's worked with everyone, U2, and, and of course he did the Blur uh, 13 album. and uh, 13, which is a fantastic album. I mean, he had that real moment in the sun, but th and then it's very interesting what happens after that and how he's come back. Yeah, and he's got a new album out called The Painter. And all this will unfold. 
let's get him on. Welcome to The Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. That's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. So great to talk to two guys that have done this. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters Podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hi, William. Hello. William, we're up in the mountains in the Alps because we're on tour. We're recording this end anyway. Yeah, I'm recording my end too, Pro Tools, so... I've got a little road mic going on here. Oh, brilliant. Well done. It's it's quite funny, William. We often find that the more technically minded, the more sort of producerial the guest we have, the less technical they are. You're so right. <laughs> you get asked, if, especially if your name is Orbit, it's like, <laughs> oh, you know how to fix my hi-fi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but your original fascination Ooh. was tape recorders, wasn't it? Because there's a, something you said in a podcast, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. You said about the first time you saw a tape recorder was the idea of capturing, of keeping sound. I can't remember what the actual phrase you used. Yeah. It was really good. It was a revolutionary notion. And um, it was like discovering food. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like little morsels of sound. And I drove my family nuts. I went about eight with this tiny tape recorder recording everything. Then I realised I need to actually have some content. So very well having the means, but you have to make content if you want people's interest. <laughs> you know, it's funny you should say that because you just reminded me of um, when I was 11, I got given a Philips cassette recorder, 1971 this was, by Trevor Huddleston, the Bishop of Stepney. He'd heard me uh, sing a couple of my songs at a, a prize giving at my school and, and he liked what I'd written and he brought this um, tape recorder around to the house. But one of the things I did on it with my friend was we recorded a play that we'd written. And I remember it was about rockets taking off. And the way to get a good rocket noise was I got my dad's radiogram, put the needle on the rubber <laughs> and just turned it on. <laughs> so it was going, <laughs> and we spoke over it going, you know, Houston, come in, Houston. Beep. But that fascination of being able to put things down on tape, was uh, it felt very modern, didn't it? Absolutely. I mean, they did have them at schools. And I do remember there was somebody, there was a teacher with a tape recorder, but there were big old things and there's no way you could ever take one home. But yeah, it's fascinating. And yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I was just setting up the mic and I, that's a good explosion, actually. All that <laughs> microphone noise. Oh, yeah. Did you ever cut up tape? I did, but I used sellotape, which is a mistake because it starts to ooze out the sides, the glue, and it gubbins up the gubbins, as, as it were. Wow. You know, there's special tape for it, you know, that you buy. But I got really good at it. You wouldn't see my hands move. It's a, it's a skill set that's thoroughly defunct. When you got into studios, did you have that? Because so, I always remember the first time you were in a recording studio, seeing someone edit tape, you just think, oh, my God, that is... It's like being a bomb disposal expert or something. It seems like the most terrifying thing to do. <laughs> but yeah, editing 24-track tape, definitely. Get it wrong and you're buggered. But I actually remember coming back when I was uh, an eight-track studio and we'd been to our first 24-track session and there was this big, fat, wide, two-inch tape in a box and I, I felt very important putting that on the shelf. It's like, yeah, this is proper. Let's not go back too soon. I want to talk about... Yeah, the painter. Yeah, it's some beautiful stuff on here, William. I also saw your clip 
on Jules Holland doing the uh, the Colours track the other day. And uh, she's an extraordinary singer you have there. I know, there's something about her voice. I mean, she's unique. There's, there's certain singers that are, you know, there's nobody else in the world that sounds remotely like them, and she's one of those singers. And she's quite nervous. What's her, what's her, remind me of her name. Polly Scattergood. Polly Scattergood. How could I forget yeah, such a fantastic name? fantastic name. And she's been a mute, mute records for a long, all most of her career. And, yeah, she was quite nervous. But when she, when I was there behind her and she hit that kind of chorus, I was, had shivers. You know, it was terrific. I really enjoyed that show. It's really fun, actually. Jules is great. We've met before years ago. But he does this, it make it look so easy. It's very balletic. It's very choreographed, the way they do it in, the, in the, this room, you know, with this crane doing the crane shots. But also all the musicians had a tremendously good time. You can tell. Well, because everyone loves playing in front of their peers. I mean, that's why I, I loved it. And the yeah. fact that it starts with that jam thing, you know, of everyone just playing together. <laughs> Yeah, everybody dancing to each other's tracks, hanging out. It was this sweet. And it was at Alexandra Palace in, you know, this totally derelict, unreconstructed play. I mean, I used to break in and play as a child to this theatre. And there was great lumps on the floor where the floor had kind of buckled up. And the crane operator, and they weren't used to the crane. It was a new thing, these crane shots. This gigantic thing. I mean, it's huge. And it takes, what, five operators. And they had to steer around all these warps in the floor. Because if they hit one, the whole thing would just wobble. Oh, wow. And I thought it was magnificent. When you've been in the recording and then you watch it back, you think, wow, there's more going on here than I realised. They make it look easy. Yeah, It was superb. Were you a bit nervous about taking what is, you know, a very studio sound, especially, say, on her voice, you know, the effects that you put on, and and making that work not only live, but given TV hmm. producers and mixers dealing with it? Well, we the sound team, first of all, you get your own desk. Each artist gets their own setup, which is terrific. So you, there's a chance to really perfect it. And the guy that did the sound and the monitor guy came to a little rehearsal we did, so... I was very confident that these are the best to the best. So I wasn't really worried about that. Um, TV sound is better these days. I was going to say, the BBC have come a long way. <laughs> Gosh, yes. Yeah, I mean, there's a guy, Bob Nettles, who does a lot of their classical work as well. I've been in um, sessions with him on his digital desk, and I, it doesn't get any better than that. You know, these people are probably the, the creme de la creme of recording people for live radio, so I wasn't worried. The journey for you coming towards this album... Uh, is you know which I've read about is is quite extraordinary, your tale and your honesty, and the sense of maybe artistic redemption that it's brought you. Yeah, I can't quite believe it actually because it's you know merged from what was the worst time in my life when music wasn't even an option to what is now a really jolly good time. I'm enjoying life generally and the creativity and being so busy because when you make a record and you're just it's a, you know, a solo artist essentially although with his guests there's a lot to do and if you're doing the visuals as well it's a lot a lot to do you know it's uh, videos and animations and so forth i.e. one is very busy but it's stuff that's fun to do I just can't I go to bed every night thinking I can't wait to wake up and crack on with what I'm doing it's very nice what went wrong and what sort of things in a way you had to sort of hit the bottom to, to approach <sighs> this album well I could say it was a sort of perfect storm of events some of which I caused I brought upon myself some of which was just life throwing awful curveballs as it can and then there was I took drugs and I was not taking care of myself so all these things combined and I had this it was it wasn't that so much it was just that I had this I think false impression of who I was I, I didn't I just worked out who I am and I don't like it at all and I felt really really pointless and it was quite horrible 
dreadful actually. And then I sort of had a, t- a change of heart. Something happened, and that kept you know, including some amazing friends. And one thing leads to another, and I don't intend to. St- come off this now I figured it out I figured it out there was there's no reason to go there again regardless of what happens you know it's sort of almost like it's like being yourself 2.0 at my late age you know it's like you can steer away from stuff I kind of know what you mean and I don't mean to sound glib in any way William but I mean is it almost because it's before you went through sort of this big episode of discovering drugs and everything it's like you is it almost like you had to go through something massively cathartic to bring yourself back to... Well, you know, there is that sort of everything for a purpose that we tend to sort of retrospectively attach to events, you know, to try and question it too much. Otherwise, you drive yourself nuts because a lot of it is random. It's a stochastic process as much as anything else. But the actual answer is yes, it had to be. You couldn't possibly be in the state that I'm in now having not gone through that. So that's a paradox, isn't it? I, I wish... I don't regret anything... I wouldn't change it because it's in the past. There's no need to change it. You're not living in the past, but I wouldn't wish oh, but it upon brilliant. anybody. That's brilliant. But that's job done because it's because regret is the thing that kills you. Yes, yeah. indeed. I wouldn't wish it upon anybody in their <laughs> own path to um, happiness and creative satisfaction. I mean, there are other ways. But in my case, fortunately, it turned out okay. And I don't want to sound glib or smug, but it came all right. So I'm very happy. But... Because in normal jobs, in everyday <laughs> life, people get their job and they retire at 65 and then everyone you get the gold watch and people say, thank you very much. You've done a brilliant job. Off you go to the sunset. In our lives, in our jobs, in artistic jobs, the first person to think, oh, my God, I'm not wanted anymore is ourselves. Yeah. You know, and that <laughs> I think we've all experienced that. And, and it comes at a much younger age and it doesn't necessarily come at an age where we have finished, you know. It's just that we all go through times when our career doesn't look or feel as good as it should be. You've managed to come out of that, but part of what hit, made you hit the bottom was that terrifying notion that maybe I'm, I'm not worthy anymore. Yeah, and you, I just feel like you're up this wall of indifference is like a, you know, like the Berlin Wall. It's, it gets more and more... Uh, resolute uh, as you know because the Berlin Wall was just a bit of concrete wasn't it some slabs and some barbed wire and then they course they people would cross it and they would dig tunnels so they found all these ways of stopping tunnels and tanks and people climbing over and the wall got tougher and tougher until people were resigned to the fact they were going to have to stay in East Berlin and then that was the similarly with my feeling of like rebuffment if you like it was getting more and more a wall through which I just couldn't penetrate but I was misguided about that, and of course you have to work hard um, as well. You have to put in the, you have to, you have to, you have to work. You've got to do stuff, and it's harder when I you're would older. Say, because William, there is a thing with you because you were actually very, very fortunate compared to a lot of people in our business in that your, I mean, only looking, I'm sure it didn't feel like it at the time, but in retrospect, because your career, you know, you had your first deal in what 1980 or whatever, mm. and you have this great, this sort of slow burn through the 80s with, you know, Pastor Massey and all that, there's all sorts of stuff I want to get to. But then it, like, went bam in the mid-90s. So you'd actually had a much nicer, longer, slower run. What I mean is a lot of people who do what we do were done by the time you hit. I think I got quite used to and comfortable in the slow burn zone. I mean, that was my thing. Yeah. Periods of, you know, I'd get frustrated, but I always realised I was... I felt like an outsider, even in my own country. I've never had any British sort of, never got Brit or anything. And I've always felt a bit like not part of the prevailing wave to my frustration and then later to my relief. So this is a burn, you know, and tracks, albums that come out and don't really garner much 
attention, but they're still around 20 years later. That was my thing. It's like, this is okay, I can do this. So when the big boom came along with Madonna's, you know, it was triggered that in 97, 98, I didn't know how to handle it. And that threw me off kilter, really. And, and I sort of had a slow decline ever since. Because, you know, this thing about retiring at 65, you know, sports, if you're a footballer, you, you know, you've got to retire much younger than that. And if you're a pop musician, it's sort of the same thing. It's a very young game. If you want to stick around, you have to be a producer or in jazz or in classical. You know, you, you can't always be you know, selling the youth thing that is such an attractive um, thing. And we love that, the sound of youth, the, the look of youth is very alluring, but it passes. And so if you're in that game, you have to you have to think, well, oh, I didn't realise how easy things were back then. It was only because I was young and pretty, you know, it's like the same thing now isn't so easy. And it's like, well, that's because you're not, you know, you're not a young flower anymore. So, but you have to put a lot of work in, but it's also, oh, I don't know, I do think of myself as still younger so when I see my, I've, I've been on telly a couple of times recently due to this record coming out I mean I was on channel four news for a little and I'm looking at myself thinking god I look like an old guy my eyes are all wonky I've got loads of luggage under my eyes you know a whole set of Louis Vuitton building up there are people going to go what an old dude what's he got to do with anything and then I resigned myself to the fact well you know you don't have to look at it just listen to it listen to it because that that is doesn't have anything to do with age whatsoever it's now for me, it's very fresh. You're also growing up with your audience. I mean, the, <laughs> I suppose part of the problem was you came from a style of music that is about the clubs and people only tend to go to clubs when they haven't got kids or when they're young and single. Mm-hmm. But that music, especially with this new album, has matured into something that is, you play at home. You know, you can listen to it. It is a form of modern classical in a way. It's textured, it's layered, it has more depth than just a dance track. It's not house or it's not just techno. And you introducing thoughtful artists into that mix, like Beth Orton, you know, like uh, some of the talking parts that happen on this new record. That is a sense of finding an adult way of doing this. I wanted it to be thoughtful. Thank you for pointing that out. And I wanted it to be quite reassuring as well, because it's reassured me and I wanted that to translate. And I also wanted it to be a very satisfying listen on headphones. I mean, I mixed most of it on headphones, to be honest, and to yield up its secrets slowly, you know. And I didn't do the whole thing over the course of the 18 months. You know, I used material as well from previously that I had in my deep archives so that there was a sense of continuity going back. And also sonically, because all the old stuff was done on tape, you know, with, with that valve gear and all that. Oh, yes. I've still got all my strange cargo albums. <laughs> So I keep squeaking. This squeak is actually a pen that I'm twiddling, so I'll put it down. But it's also a very... A mouse that I'm torturing as yeah, I'm Yeah, I'm actually squashing a mouse. No, actually, that's outside. <laughs> I, you know, squirrels are really loud. At my balcony here, because I live on a square, there's a squirrel, that is his territory. I mean, I'm here as a guest, and he's very aggressive. He's very urban. He's like a gangster squirrel, and he's got a very shifty look. Because in the countryside, they just hop around and look like Adam and Beatrix Potter book. But in town... They're very intimidating, these squirrels. No, we've got the same. We've got the same. We've got a squirrel and we are absolutely on his manner. Yeah. They're loud, aren't they, as well? They're very loud. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen them in the park, you know, like ski goals. They've learned to be kind of proactive to get their run-up people's chests, you know, to get the food. I've seen tourists go, oh, look, a squirrel. Next thing you know, there's children are <laughs> screaming. Okay, okay, <laughs> enough of squirrels. I just want to ask this question then. What was the key for you to escape the bottom? Well, I've read, it was art, wasn't it? Painting? It was art, yes. You know, about five years ago, I started doing art. But 
the real key as well is actually technology. The how-to bit, you know, the geeky stuff, just learning new toys, new tricks, because you could always learn stuff, you know, on Pro Tools and Logic and... But my happy place is also is art and digital art too. I love to I could just I just love to do art and I love to do it digitally or with a paintbrush. I don't listen ever listen to music when I'm doing art. I just I'm just fiendishly engrossed in books, audiobooks, or podcasts. You know, they two sit very well. It's nothing you know, with a couple of times in my life I've been fixing a laboriously fixing, doing some housekeeping on a track and trimming off bits of clicks and do it or something like that. And I know it's gonna take two hours and I might put on some radio as I do it, but that's the extent of it. Yeah, that's point naught naught one of the music making time. Music making is very immersive, you know, there's nothing yeah. else. It's like that when typically Everybody knows this one. You've got headphones on, you're deeply immersed and somebody comes along to offer you a cup of tea and you leap out of your seat. If you're with somebody gently rocking away on their Logic Audio or the Ableton with headphones on, sort of walk slowly in front of them so they can see you because if you just tap them on the shoulder, the normal reaction you'd get was, yep, (laughs) it can be very shocking to be brought out of that immersive deep state, hypnotic. But for that, it's the opposite and you can have the two streams if you like completely functional at the same time so that's a double bonus double dividend fantastic well it's funny because the last guest we had on was my old mate youth oh. producer and i was when i've worked with him he'll usually be painting something or oh. while the session's going on well doodling is great too because when you doodle you know anybody doodles and you've got a piece of paper and a pad and you're not even thinking you're just concentrating on the, the dialogue and the discourse you're totally there in the conversation so you're hand is doing something you're not even thinking about it's always worth looking at what you doodles just just give your doodles to a psychiatrist and he'll tell you exactly where you're at (laughs) no put your doodles on an album sleeve and see and that'll tell you what you're at that's more like it well you know (laughs) nick mason who we're working with you know he did the he did his doodles all over the you know he made the relics album sleeve a lot of artists a lot of musicians turn to art as well don't they i mean bowie does art and paul mccartney does art yeah captain beefart yeah well, Captain Beefheart, he actually said, didn't he, when he became an artist, he said, I've been cured of music. <laughs> but he was a man for a perverse <laughs> statement, though, anyway. He, he was a, yeah, he yeah, was a yeah. contrarian. I mean, what about um, Blue? Joni Mitchell as well. I mean, she's a very right, sought-after yeah. artist. Bob Dylan. Dylan, yeah. I mean, yeah, the only Dylan. thing is, if you're stamped as a musician, you know, there's automatically, oh, you're a Sunday painter. Well, I don't care. I, you know, I know the art world in London and in the US to a degree, I know there's people, I've got many friends, and I would never try and claim to be in that world. I don't speak the lingo, nor do I see myself seriously. Yeah. I just love to do it, and I like it. It's pretty. You know? I haven't got paragraphs yeah. of exposition about it all. It's, I've got nothing to say about it. it. There it is. I think that not having two jobs thing, I have to say, is quite a British thing. In America, it's much more acceptable to, if you're any kind of artist, you can try different mediums. I think it's perfectly okay to be a musician and have several other jobs. You know, I like to multitask. I love it. I like things when they also don't connect, you know, when you're doing something that has nothing relevant to the creative work. I love that. I find it very stimulating to be in circles where music is, yep, everybody's interested in the creative arts, but it's not what anybody does. Can we ask you about uh, who William Orbit was as a young man? and uh, in his, uh, how he discovered music and who he was into. I'm just in the process of my um, Italian passport application because I'm going to be living in Italy and I had to sort of dig back a bit to everything you know I was born in 1956 you know which you know that that gives it away in a very different world to teachers but I really wanted to be creative but I didn't actually know how to really do it properly I mean messing around with tape recorders but as a professional it didn't happen till I was 23 and I left school at 15 stroke 16 so it was a long time coming 
But um, when it did happen, it was like all in, totally all in. That was all I wanted to do. It's all I've ever, you know, I'm, that's how I learned my living, you know, through thick and thin. Yeah, but it was a classical background, wasn't it, that you come from? It's with, this is well known. But were you drawn to that? Did you love that? Did you want to play classical music? I've spoken to other musicians who are the same, and they said that at school and at home, they rebelled against being taught piano or recorder. You know, they hated it and made it clear to their parents and to their teachers. And often saying you maybe misbehaved in music classes because they were so boring. Um, these days, it's different. I mean, they're wised up Absolutely now with children. Like, it's yeah. like, come on, play yeah. children stuff they love until they're literally busting your, to get an instrument in their hands rather than try and force your own stuff onto them. But in those days, and I hated it, so... Sorry, what was the question again? Yeah, <laughs> happens to us all. Uh, yeah, sorry, where are we? Um, the, the, the fact that you had this classical yes. background. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. It was, it, yeah, no, I loved it, yeah. and um, I did adore it. Uh, quite an eclectic classical range. I mean, my parents were obsessed with um, Benjamin Britten, so there was all of that, Peter Pierce. But they were also obsessed with Schubert and Mozart. And I, to this day, you know, every note of some of those Mozart, the clarinet, concerto, Sinfonia Concertante, you know, in my head, I can sometimes, for my own sort of entertainment, I perform it for myself in my head every note. I try to sing it too, but <laughs> that doesn't work. So I'm very happy with that. But then I discovered pop music, you know, and it was, whoa, like bass. I can't remember being so enthralled by them because my father had bought a hi-fi, like people did. That's what dads did. Can you remember what it was? Can you remember what the hi-fi was? It was Goldring Lenko. A B&O? No, it wasn't B&O. It was Goldring Lenko. Oh. was the, an English speaker's big speakers, big sound. I mean, he just wanted to blast Vivaldi at the top volume. And of course, stereo came in just after. So he had all these records of a train passing and crossing, you know, and it would sit there and listen to it going from oh. left to right. So when I got, finally got some recordings of pop music, like Jim Hendrix, for instance, or reggae, on my little tape recorder and plugged it in, to the system it was like wow what makes bass what is it i didn't know i remember the day i first discovered bass there's not exactly a lot of bass in classical music not sustained deep throbbing bass i mean no, you know you true. do get yeah, some yeah, great yeah. bass notes when all the double basses do a pizzicato at the same time but that's not the same timpani tends to throw out the most yes. impressive bass frequencies and but there's like another octave there's another floor below you know that mm. comes off the bass guitar you know especially in because reggae yeah well it's known for its bass and I did. Somebody explained to me once that the reason why the bass is so satisfying is because those studios in the seventies in say Jamaica were very cheap, homemade. You know, with egg boxes on the wall largely, and they record musicians pretty much live as a band before they put the vocals on. So all the mics are open and all the speak. The bass is bouncing, you know, booming out of its own cabinet, but it's all picking up on all the other mics and all the other sort of you know vocal mics and whatnot, oh, and all right. the other instruments. And they didn't filter it out, so there's this, the bass is spread around the entire recording in a very sort of ecological way that gives you that warmth. And so, <laughs> but bass is interesting because in the in on vinyl you can't get as much bass bottom end because the needle will jump out of the groove if you cut too much bass. And it's funny that techno music and dance music, where bass became such a huge thing it was given its place because of the digital recording world and the fact that things were coming out on CDs and you could get more bass on CD. That's why it was around 1989 that we all had to get five strings. <laughs> Suddenly all bass players had to have a five string. And after a few years, you realise that's actually kind of rubbish. But it was that thing of because you were trying to compete with bass synths and everyone was playing an octave yeah, you couldn't Exactly. I know. I remember going on tour yeah. with Bassomatic and we were supporting a band, it was Seal's band, and I know there was a bit of frustration on the part of Seal and his band because we'd been on stage and I'm playing stuff off the decks. I've got synths going and the bass is solid. 
and then you know it just felt a bit lighter after that not their fault but that was you know an advantage of but yeah, yeah that's the thing with vinyl i mean you've got a wide stereo spread all being determined by these two sides of the valley of if you like cut into the plastic which is amazing but the bottom end you can't if you it below a certain frequency you think about that needles moving slower for those slower frequencies you can't put the bass out of phase on either side because you're asking the needle to be in two places at the same time you know which is great in quantum mm. physics but not for needles so you know you have to sort of remember <laughs> all that kind of thing <laughs> if the vinyl's running fast you get more like 45s you know you get better bass than on the 33 and it's all very much bass manipulation whereas now as you say you can put the bass and tape speed as well wasn't oh, it because yeah. like adrian sherwood always used to record at half the speed the slower the tape the better the bass you lose all the top yeah, you get yeah, all the Yeah, there's some pure physics in that, you know, that explains that. It's not just subjective. Of course, yeah, with digital, you can have to base out a phase, whatever you like, you know, it doesn't matter because nothing's going to yeah. crank out. There's a friend of mine, um, James Wiltshire, who was in the Freemasons. He now does all these audio packs. But he gave me a timeline of the history of bass frequencies and how basically it's to do with nightclub sound systems and stuff. There was a thing that happened in the mid-90s when the bass floor went down, it like doubled. And then another thing happened in the early 2000s when the bass floor doubled <laughs> again, which is why you now have this infinite capacity for bass. So, which is why there's this terrible thing, which is if you're in a club and you're listening to some sort of new banging track and it's fine, but then you put on Chic and suddenly you've got this, the most magnificent dance record you've ever heard, but it hasn't got that bottom. You know, because they just didn't physically yeah, have it. That's a good point, actually. I mean, I know you can have all the floors. You know, they have floors, don't they? How many bigger places that vibrate? The floor's a giant bass beat, yeah, bass yeah. boom. But yeah, of course, if it's not there, there's nothing you can do about it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals, and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants, and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health, and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. 
Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. I'm going to mention that track, Ray of Light, which always gets mentioned. People like to hear it, but it always sounds very thin to me. You know, there's no bottom end on it. It's a rock track, if you like, really. But what were you thinking at the time? What were you trying to do at the, at the time? Show off, basically. I was showing off. I got. Yeah. I did start <laughs> with the techno beat, you know, like a 909 type of sound, but it was all, I mean, it was the jammiest of tra- jammy as in an improvisational sense and jammy as in lucky as well. But it was a jam. I was showing off in the studio with the guitar and the synths and Madonna was showing off with what she could do and it was very spontaneous and didn't want to fix it. That was it. You know, the vibe is terrific as it is. Let's not try and cut it up and turn it, make it too neat and posh. It works. So that was a very kind of um, off-the-cuff track, which for her is unusual. Where did it come from then, coming for our listeners? Well, I was working with this singer called Christine Leach, and she had this uncle who had written this folk song and sadly passed away. And I put on this amazing beat, and she starts, you know, what shall I sing now, William? Well, I don't know, what have you got in your sort of rag bag of songs? I thought she was writing it, but it was actually, she was sort of singing this folk tune into the track. And it's like, this is great. And it was still very rudimentary. It wasn't it, by any means what you hear now with Ray of Light, but it was enough that uh, when Madonna heard it, she jumped on it and said, yeah, let's take this further. How did she hear it? That's the thing. How did she hear it? How do you mean how did, with my ears? How do you mean how did I hear it? No, how did Madonna hear it? He must well, have had the job by then, I'm guessing. Yeah, no, I'd done yeah. the, the recording. Oh, you had the job, I She wasn't even on the, in my horizon when I did it. I did yeah. what I thought was going to be Strange Cargo... Five, I suppose. Next to my cassette, so I did Strange Cargoes one, two, and three. Then I did Hinterland, which is essentially Strange Cargo four. Yeah. Couldn't call it that because it was a contractual thing. And then this was going to be Strange Cargo five on Warner's, and it just didn't really click for Warner's. And it ended up being her Madonna listening to it, and she just was on the phone the next day, basically, and said, "Come and let's do this." And then we did it. A tiny little, well, not tiny, but a quite intimate studio in Burbank, which is part of the kind of Greater Los Angeles area very far away from all the fancy LA bits. Well, I know, because I used to work with her at Pat Leonard's studio, which is in Ah, yes, yes, yes. And Pat was involved, and Pat was involved, so I met up with Pat, and you wrote Frozen. And it's very convenient, because we were never bothered by anybody, nobody ever would come round. It's very intimate. And we were there for some months. William, I, I I just wanted to go back a little bit to when you first got introduced to Madonna, and if, because she was such a big star, and she's a very powerful star, was there a sense of, wow, I can't believe I've got this job, I'm not worthy? Or was there a certain level of fear and insecurity in approaching how to work with this person? There wasn't fear, but there was a lot of wow. I mean... Did she phone you up first? She did. Because my first ever conversation with Madonna was she called me up at four in the morning and went, I hear you're funny, make me laugh! <laughs> She's got a weak spot for, for, for humour. I mean, that's the way to diffuse any because you can get a bit tense you know with a yeah if i found that but yeah. if you kind of find the funny bone it resets it's you know it's like and she loves that and she's funny she's a comedian herself but how was it writing with her how was that approach we well did you feel I got the call you know i got the call a friend of mine took it he said you know this friend of mine is very chill out to do this bit of a stoner and he picks up and he says hey william it's madonna it's like all oh, right <laughs> you know and i she tells me you know discuss what is and she, she said would you like to come out and try out some stuff and then before we actually went into the hip factory for five days, I went around to her apartment on um, the park. So she's living a couple of apartment blocks from that big one where the 
film with Mia Farrow. What's it called? Poltergeist? No. What's the film? Uh, Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, that, that famous the apartment block. I forget that. John Lennon lived there as well. And hers is... Uh, uh, the Dakota. So she's a couple of blocks up from the Dakota and it was very impressive. And I arrived there and it was a beautiful apartment, of course. It had a gym and bowls of candy everywhere. And it was, it, was, it was a rainy day in New York and I turned up a bit drenched and was, you know, I was in very taken aback because immediately we were talking about music. It wasn't like, oh my God, you know, I'm around a pop star. I've never been particularly, I mean, people fascinate me. Anybody fascinates me, including pop stars and famous people because they're usually famous and for a reason because they're fascinating, but they don't have to be a pop star. I just like interesting people. So that's my, my level of engagement already. It's very tuned in. But soon we're talking about music and stuff and the tracks and practicalities. And it's like, this is going to be great. And we did the recording subsequently, and at the end of the four or five days, it had gone very well. And I remember she came in with her little baby, Lola, and she said, well, we'll go, William. I'm going to, you'll hear from my uh, manager to arrange the nuts and bolts of it all in the studio, but we're on. And of course, then she went, and everybody in the studio, and it wasn't, you know, the engineer and the tape op and the assistant all kind of were going, as she walks out the door and she's gone, it's like, wow, William, <laughs> no idea. <laughs> And I was so pleased. And I, when I, I said this before, but when I was on the plane going back, I felt like I was flying the plane. It didn't need petrol. My oh. own energy was taking the jumbo oh. jet back. That's beautiful. Did you produce her vocally, though? How, did you have to have that job? Well, I did. But also I had help with that, especially initially with um, an engineer called Pat McCarthy, who was fantastic. He already knew Oh, her. yeah. Wonderful oh, guy. Yeah. Wonderful man. I mean, just yeah. so good. I learned so much from him. And he had a really special way and there's another engineer Dave Wright's this an American guy who was a bit more mainstream you know worked with all the divas well these guys knew the ropes I've always recorded vocals I've always loved recording vocals I've always taken great care on the recording and on, on what happens afterwards but it was good to have their expertise especially at the outset because we were in a whole different level of technology you know mics that cost tens of thousands of pounds and Madonna you know you can't get this wrong yeah so I did, yes, I did have help, but I, you know, I know how to record vocals. Half the tracks I've done with her, her vocal has actually just been the guide she did in the control room while the band were putting the track down. I mean, yes, it's just yes. stunning. I, and the thing is, when you get her, stunning. a typical process, the standard, if you like, is to record three passes, pass A, B and C, and then yeah. you go and comp it together. And then usually the first take or well, the second take is the one, and you pop a couple of syllables in from others because we don't have to, we don't mess around. There was no auto tune, there's no, you know, none of that, not a thing. It's just like this is it, you know. Every singer can hit a note that's not quite on. Well, one of the other takes will be fine. We pop it in. That's comping. Never take long. But yeah. um, I remember Pat Leonard saying to me when he, we were on take two, and this is when she's doing the hums for Frozen, the humming section, and she does it once, she does it twice, and Pat says. That's the gold. That's the money. When she does it twice, then you can hear that super, super rich golden sound she's got. There's no technology involved. There's nothing. Just twice her singing it. And with my experience with singers is yeah. that if you really want to get a good double track, they don't hear themselves when they're doing each version. So there's more kind of variation because some singers can get very perfect. So they sing it again and it's just, it's too much the same. So... But no, with Madonna, it's yeah. it's hard work. It's quite stressful doing the comps because she works at such a pace and you can't yeah. zone out. You know, you've got to be utterly on it. The normal rules of making music when you can kind of be zoning in and out, you know, as you go along, don't apply. You've got to be like flying a plane. You've got to be right on it. So it's quite hard work. 
not difficult with her, never difficult. She's an excellent, you know, she's technically one of the most you know, accomplished singers I've ever worked with, especially at that point in her career, as well as the fact she's another person with a voice that you can never mistake. It's Madonna. You know it. I was going to say, because you and I actually, we met when you were doing 13, round at Damon Albarn's house. Oh, yes. That's right. Yeah, I was probably very drunk. But yeah, because you were quite keen to know what my experience of Madonna was. You really wanted to compare notes. Well, I'm keen to know now. <laughs> well, you know, I was, I was just playing bass. So um, probably the proudest thing of my career, which is like a prayer. So. Oh, well, I'll make a point of listening to that after we've done. And um... It's the space in the middle section and the end section, which is insane. I still can't believe I was allowed to do it. Wow. You know? How did that come about? I knew Pat. I knew Pat Leonard very through. Uh, I met him through working with Brian Ferry, and then through Pink Floyd, and he used to use to get me in on everything. Wow. So, which was fantastic. I just wanted to wrap up on Madonna, really, because you worked with her for twenty years, right up to sort of, um, you know, MDNA or, or that, that you know the last later albums with her and music and um, and how that pressure built over that period of time with her as well as as you know fashions came and went did you sense the pressure building i'm very aware that she is very clued into the zeitgeist and i run on my own kind of zeitgeist if you like and i and in music she discovered this amazing guy this french guy Miraways, and i at the time wasn't just didn't go there aesthetically so that caused a bit of a musical divergence I mean, it wasn't unfriendly or anything but it, I could sense she wanted to you know she fell in love with his, his sound so as did I and wanted that so it's been on and off I would love to do something kind of more organic and fractal with her at some point I'm sure we will but um well she's done some remix album which is actually fantastic I sense that, that once that's out of the way, there's another Madonna record coming because she'll never stop. I mean, she's a musician. At the end. You know, you only want to look at her face when she's in the studio. It's like, that's a happy place. And she's just what she does. You know, I mean, all, all the rest of it, at the end of the day, a core thing is music. And she's so good at it. So she'll be in a studio making more records. Whether I'm involved or not, I don't know. It just might be me just getting a call saying, oh, William. And she's a bit naughty like this because I know I've had calls from her and say, God, these people are just rookies. I don't know, William. I kind of be like you and all kind of communicate properly. And like, well, I'm sure they're fine, Madonna, but I know full well that she's done that exactly the same thing about me. And she's just told me I'm just useless <laughs> and rung up. You know, she'll bring Rick Rubin in one day just to sort of say, William, you're getting a bit sloppy. Here's Rick, you know. So she does that a little bit. But I wish her well. I hope she makes a record that she's you know, super happy with. That's the key. Yeah, because the modern experience of, with producing is a bit of a patchwork quilt, isn't it? Where you've got other producers doing different tracks and there isn't a way nowadays of saying, you know, I'm going to produce the whole album. It's a concept. I know, I know. And of course, you know, it can work. I mean, I really like that last Dua Lipa album. I think there are lots of producers involved. I don't know who helmed that in A&R terms, but they did a bang up job. But the thing about Ray of Light, it was timely because it was CDs, it was albums, it wasn't. There was no separate track purchase like Spotify and stuff. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, when a single came out, you could buy it, but you couldn't just buy a track off an album. You bought the CD if it was an album track. That's right, yeah. And so, the, coupled with the fact that she absolutely kept everybody from the label that day, nobody ever came from Warner's. The only people that came to visit were Rick Rubin or something, and some of her friends and family, but it was no pros came. And you could do that then. For starters, it couldn't leak. For second, it was a CD thing. For thirdly, we're very isolated. And fourth, the market wasn't that kind of market. Could you do the same now? I believe you can, but you'd have to be 
very determined. You know, I make an album that is one producer, one artist, one set of people, one studio. Best is to go somewhere and book a residential place for two months and lock the doors, I think. But you've got to be very careful with stuff leaking. You know, it's, it's, it's a different world. We should talk about Blur. Talk about an album that is like done in the traditional way. We really went and did it like an old-fashioned way. We recorded the tape. We parted a lot. The band played everything. The band were the band. There was nobody came as a guest producer or guest performer, apart from the choir. The choir, yeah, on Tender, which is, of course is magnificent. Oh, we did that. No, did we do that in Iceland? We did the choir in London, and we were instructed by the choir master beforehand, no profanities, please. This is a um, not a secular choir, so keep the language uh, tame. And I do yeah. think we tried our best not to profanitize, not to be profane, but... We did some recording in Iceland, but most of it was just done in one little studio in Primrose Hill. But it was famously a difficult album, wasn't it? The band was sort of breaking up or yes, not getting on was. with each other. How was that for you? And also because you're not writing on this record as well. You're sort of serving Damon, really, aren't you? Well, the latter aspect I, I relish. I like that. I like the same with you, too. I mean, look, I get enough chance to write my own stuff with other people. I love it when I'm just the producer. The difficulty was the fact that, you know, Damon and Graham were having some friction shall we just say Graham was going through stuff at the yes, time wasn't was. he yeah. and that had, yeah. I mean it, it wasn't as if we were going through stuff but let's put it you know while we're doing tracks while we're recording let's put it to one side and just get on with it it pervaded every aspect of the recording and so I did find myself getting quite tired out from the diplomacy involved plus I wasn't a smoker at the time and I've, I've always been an on-off smoker in my life unfortunately but at the time I wasn't smoking and they were puffing away like mad and I remember gasping 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 but I did enjoy it very much but it was quite difficult with the psychology of it all the diplomacy because also because Damon was actually in the middle of a bit of a lost weekend wasn't he he'd split up from he'd moved into a flat with Jamie Hewner <laughs> on Westbourne Grove he just split up with his and it was girlfriend. just this non-stop party flat yeah I only lived about 100 yards away and that's where I met yes. you William because and it was just all going on there all the time and I was thinking hang on they're making an album in the middle of all this I can remember rolling up there on a very bright sunny day to the studio in a taxi to Primrose Hill because I was in St John's Wood at the time and and we'd been drinking the night before and as I passed the doorway of this shop there's Alex asleep in the doorway he's been up all night (laughs) (laughs) and Damon would get very excitable because he you know when Damon's He's good, and he knows he's good, and he loves being good. And when he is, he gets very happy, you know, and why not? And I can remember him charging up and down on the Neve mixing desk. I mean, you know, this is a grown man running up and down on a priceless old antique desk worth hundreds, thousands of pounds, and, yeah. and well, enjoyed the moment, but also was like, uh, who's liable for this? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was good times. But you were pushing them in a, in a slightly different direction, it felt. Or was that Damien? I mean, how was your role between the two of you? I think, on reflection, I think both of us were pushing in different ways. His writing, his arrangement skills, he was developing. And I was also developing. We were learning new techniques and things. Just to get a bit uh, technical, I'm, I do apologise to you and your listeners if the audio hey. coming from No, we love a bit. We love a bit. We love a, a bit, bit of it. Yeah, right. I don't think you'll hear anything nasty. Oh, okay. it's a good old... Sorry, I thought, I thought you were going to say something technical, which we like. <laughs> well, there's that day when we got like 0.5 of the decibel up, up this Simpty code was 2.739 and about five phase and 180. <laughs> so exciting. I want to tell you all about it. Stop it, you're turning us on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and these walls are very thin. <laughs> I hear Swiss wine is very good. We, we, we don't know. Guy and I are not drinking on the tour. Oh, okay. 
But you're right. I did used to okay, drink I Swiss, Swiss wine. wine I used to work in quite a lot. No, Swiss wine is actually very good, but they can't make very much of it, which is why you only ever get to have it yes, in Switzerland. Yes, good point. Yes, indeed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think it's interesting that your background was so classical, because in a way you were sort of made for dance music in that sense, because the era that you became successful in was an era when the vocalist was probably less important and that it was about instrumentals, wasn't it? Yes. That's a good point. Yes, I mean, the term instrumentals feels a little bit less uh, loaded now. You know, it's like not just pop with the vital part missing, it's it's as valid as any other form, whereas in classical music, nobody would ever think to say, oh, this classical symphony is like an opera without the vocals. I mean, it's it's not a thing. Yeah. Um, and I think we're in an age now where it's also accepted. I believe in structure. I do believe in, in a very good melodic, Melody is king with everything. Everything has to sit right with the melody. You don't necessarily have to notice it. I don't want people to have to think about it. I'm very happy for people to think, that was a very pleasant piece of ambient music. I feel very chill now. But inside, they wouldn't necessarily know this at first listen, but there's a lot of sort of hidden source, melodically, arrangement-wise. Every note's crucial. And the thing about classical music, and when I started to deconstruct it to do those pieces in the modern style records... I don't have any education. I don't read music. I've got this kind of dyslexia for that, so I do it by ear. And when you're listening to these composers that would have written the piece you know, like 100 years ago just on a piano, I mean, every note, there's no hiding place. Every note has to yeah. work over this course of this extended piece of music. I respect that yeah. deeply. When you were doing uh, pieces in a modern style, obviously you did uh, Barber's Ardagio for Strings, which was a huge hit for you in uh, 1999. Did you hear your dad speaking to you, going, you can't do this to this music, boy? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the first... I bought a single when I was very young. I was really into Cream, and the single that I had at the time was called Badge, and I brought it home, and my dad oh, put yeah. it on. My family were never, you know, didn't really acknowledge pop music, but he put it on the wrong speed, because it was a single, and then he just stuck it on, and it played at 33 RPM, and we're sitting there, and it's going... Really so. My dad said... This is not so bad. And I'll never forget that moment because it's about the only time he ever acknowledged. But did I hear him speaking (laughs) to me? I had a lot of people speaking to me because the classical music world is a loud chorus of voices. But at the same time, I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't. I switched it all out. I switched it out and just did my thing. Didn't Arvo Park? He said no. He said no, didn't he? He didn't like you, you, you using his... You did some of his he doesn't like anybody doing it. He's, he controls everything. I don't mind. He's brilliant. He's a very, very religious man. I mean, he's a monk, basically, and he's very spiritual. And you don't just get to do a cover version of him. Whereas Goretzky was utterly brilliant and he was so nice about it because we had to pull the first record and put it in a landfill because of our pet, basically. Whereas Goretzky was brilliant. In fact, I went to Poland on a tour and we were going to meet up, but then he was called away to France. So we got on the phone and his didn't have any English at the time, I didn't have any Polish, so we both spoke in what was basically schoolboy French. But enough to determine that he was just such a nice man and so amenable to it all. I don't have any bad feelings about Arthur Perth, by the way, and I love his music. He just wasn't, you know, we should have consulted him first, that's all. The irony is we, we now have Pete Tong sort of doing Ibiza Classics with an orchestra at the Isle yeah, of Wight Festival. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I've never conducted... Well, I have conducted. I mean, I conduct in the studio quite often, you know, just to keep the tempo, but I've never conducted in front of an orchestra. I'm amazed by conductors. I wrote a symphony and I went on a train to Manchester with the guy that was conducting, Alexander Shelley, amazing conductor. And he's got my score written out and it's this great chunk of page, you know, about a foot, two foot high with all the parts written out that's been transcribed because I can't read it. And he's just sitting on the train reading my score and nodding his head and humming. And I'm thinking, dude can actually read it and hear it in his head just looking at the page. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and not know, just one part, all of the parts. Yeah. Well, that's how classical musicians often, composers work. They just write it down, don't they? They don't even go to the piano. What's no. the plan with this album, though, uh, William? Is it to take it out on the road? Uh, not this year, apart from I'm doing Docklands on uh, September the 11th to do with um, Anjuna Deep. And I'm going to do a performance at Dolby Atmos uh, headquarters in Soho Square on the uh, in August. And that's probably about it this year. Next year, I think I'd love to hit the road. I might do a residency in Venice because I've always wanted to do a thing when you turn up at the same club with the same crowd every week and develop a kind of rapport. And since I'm going to be living in Venice, I think I might do it there. Guy famously played in Venice with Pink Floyd, didn't you, Guy? Yeah. we. Where did you play? The Lido? Um, No, no. We had a giant North Sea oil barge and we put the Pink Floyd Stadium (laughs) stage on it and we floated it out to the middle of the lagoon. And we were surrounded by basically every gondola in Venice was hired by people who parked up oh in front my of the stage. God. And then we had 200,000 people in San Marcos Square. And then we went out live to every country in Europe. You're probably not looking at something like that, though, are you? Fuck <laughs> <laughs> it oh, I mean, kind if, of you to put it that way. Guy, if that isn't an advert just to frighten every potential interviewee off. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was nothing to do with me. I just turned up and played the bass. You know what I mean? I didn't build it. <laughs> Those gondolas, gondoli, gondoli, they're very skillful. I mean, I've got this back door in my house directly onto the canal, and it's the only way to, well, you could walk, but you're better off coming on. A, so people will literally come and go from my house in those little gondoli or a vaporetto or a speedboat, but by water, definitely. If they wanted to get paid off, part of they came to Steve O'Rourke, the manager, the head of the gondoliers' union, yeah. and said, if you don't give us, I don't know, 100 grand or whatever, we'll all line up in front of the stage and blow our whistle. <laughs> Like, you know, in front of the Pink Floyd PA and Steve is just like, mate, give it your best shot. And it's true that if you jump in one of those and you're English, they, the price is, you know, they do add a few noughts on. But hang on, Guy, that actually also sounds like something hypnosis might have charged thousands to direct and film. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but I know we're going to let you go, William. But yeah. did you do some work with Rick Wright, Richard Wright? Oh, I've, yes. You did a remix for Richard, yeah, oh, didn't yeah. you? yeah. Completely Because Richard was my father-in-law at the time. Oh. Sadly missed Richard. And he, um, but the funny thing was, because he was really baffled, because it was beautiful, the remix you did. And he was really baffled, he was going, but I don't understand, it's not my song. We're going, no, that's, it's a, we're having to explain what a remix was. And I realised what he was worried about was that he thought he'd had to give you publishing. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, maybe he does actually, retrospectively, now you mention it. No, of course not. And I was glad it's to do so no publishing. No, I was glad to do it. I, and I, I tried to pay yeah. homage to it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was, it was a beautiful remix. We, that we all loved it. And Gala, his daughter, loved oh, it. What is it, Guy? What was it? I can't remember what the song was. It was a track off uh, Broken China, his song. Yes, that's so, right. Uh, I'm going to dig it out. I've forgotten about it completely. Yeah. I did meet Nick Mason briefly at the Groucho Club. I mean, I've you know been aware of Pink Floyd since Grantchester Meadows and everything. Well, mate, we are going to play Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun tonight. Oh, gosh. And... You famously did set the controls for the heart of the bass. Steve Hillage. Which I presume is an homage. Yeah. Yes, it, it was an homage, definitely. I think we had to pay, I think we had to pay them publishing, but you know, that's as you do. Really? I can't oh. remember to be, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. But yeah, Steve Hillage, it was fun. Yeah, set the controls for the heart of the bass. And that's when I, funnily enough, and that's when I started to, I mean, I did call my band bass somatic, but that is when it's, the bass started to be proper you know it's like yeah and by the way you can get decent bass on vinyl you just have to master it correctly and have decent plastic look at Mowax records they pretty sound pretty bottom end yeah yeah are you going to be doing any producing in the future now do you think or is it solo work you're thinking about most no i i could see myself having an appetite i haven't got the time right now but i can see myself yeah i would now that i feel like i could i mean i've made my own record haven't i i wouldn't mind doing some production 
can be as pop as you like. I, I would like to do that in about a month or two. Let's see if anybody rings me up. I haven't put the word out. Well, your skill is that. You can do things that are very textual and art, and at the same time, you, you're willing to take on pop as well. And, you, and there's no Absolutely. shame. Absolutely. I love a good pop song. I love to put myself in the service of an artist and help them to do what they do, and technically and everything. And I love to spend a lot of time working on the vocals. I'm, it's my, that's another happy place, working on vocals, to get them just special. So, yeah, I probably should. I probably will. We'll see. Yes. You should. Well, you absolutely should, William. I'm sure we'd, we'd all welcome you back with open arms. We're going to say goodbye and thank you. Yeah. Thanks. That was really enjoyable, Ian, Gary, Guy. That was so enjoyable. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheers, Cheers. William. Thank you. What a delightful chat. What a delightful chat. Very, very nice, you know, and thoughtful. Yeah. And it's an extraordinary little kind of balance that he's able to play between art music and commercial music. You know, everything from, you know, on his new album, Katie Malua to Beth Orton, you know, you can hear and to African music, you know. I think what's very important is that he can really separate himself as a writer and a producer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which a lot of people don't, you know, there are a lot of writer-producers who will produce, but they kind of want to be writing. What we never touched on, which is worth, if any of our listeners fancy going back, is is his early band, Torch Song, which I think was a very early 80s. Well, he was, he was first signed to IRS in 1980, and he has a sort of, you know, post-punk start. Yeah, but, point, d- really. but that sort of slightly yeah. uh, German-influenced uh, electronica that he was doing yeah. in the early 80s, which obviously wasn't that successful anyway. I mean, he was a man destined to be successful later in life, in, and in the 90s, it was made for him. Yeah, absolutely. There's that thing, isn't it, that like 1956 is kind of the dream year to be born in terms of music, yeah, in terms of yeah. hearing everything. Right, Guy, I have my Alpine horn and it needs uh, using. I, uh... No, I've, I've, you've, you've got half an hour and then I'm going to release the dogs. So you've got a good head start there up the hill. And my lederhosen are... Just hanging up, chafing. waiting for me. <laughs> chafing. My ladoes are chafing terribly. Right, and um, and I'll I'll be seeing you in a few minutes at soundcheck. Well, you will. Good night from me. That is good night for him. <laughs>